Let us then return to Numbers chapter 30, which will be the focus of our meditation tonight. Numbers chapter 30. And the title I'd like to give to our meditation is Fulfill Your Word. Fulfill Your Word. This chapter is about vows and oaths. And uh, it is very much connected with the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And what it's primarily talking about here is, is when people make a vow, they are not to make the vow lightly. And they are to realize that when they make a vow to God, they will be expected to honor that vow. No exception. They will be expected to honor it. We might wonder how, how this has come about from, in chapter 30. Well, some time ago, we looked at chapter 29, and at verse 39, what do we read? These things ye shall do unto the Lord in your set feasts beside your vows and free will offerings. So it's maybe from that that possibly the people went to Moses and they asked for some clarification, some information regarding what it meant when it said, beside your vows. Now, it's interesting in the chapter, it doesn't really talk about what the vows were about. So it assumes that the worshippers, the people of Israel, knew exactly what the vows were. But they were concerned about uh, how long-lasting they were and how important they were and how they had to be honored. And here in this very brief chapter, this is what Moses addresses. We might notice that in the introduction, there is a difference between vows and oaths, but both were considered inviolate. There is a difference, slight difference, and sometimes they overlap. But the point is, they were not to be broken. They were to be honored. Someone has described the difference like this. The vow was a promise to do a certain thing for the Lord, while the oath was a promise not to do a certain thing. I'm not so sure that's an accurate description, but it does help to distinguish there is a somewhat a difference between a vow and an oath. And this is something that is quite uh, prominent and important as far as God is concerned, and he reveals it in the scriptures for us. For instance, there's a number of texts that we could quote to remind us that this is not a light matter, what we vow before the Lord. And it's all to do with uh, truth and faithfulness. This is what it's all about. Psalm 76, verse 11, where we have, quote, Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. 
Well, there are a number of things that we need to establish first before we get into the, to the chapter. One or two things that we might want to establish concerning vows and oaths. No vow, no vow whatsoever is binding which goes against the law of God. That might seem obvious, but we need to make that clear. Someone cannot vow to do something that's against the law of God. And if they do vow, then that vow is not valid, not in the slightest. Nothing must violate the word of God, the law of God. The vow had to be expressed in words. This is maybe something we haven't thought about. We could say to ourselves, maybe in our minds, we vow to do this, but that's not a vow as far as God is concerned. The vow had to be expressed in audible words. We will see that as we go through this chapter here. It had to be expressed in audible words. Again, important for us to realize that the vow was voluntary. It was not compulsory. It was something that a person did freely, willingly, voluntarily. They were never coerced. They were never forced into anything like this. And anyone who was forced into giving a vow or undertaking a vow could obviously be let off if it was because of duress. Maybe one or two examples might help us to grasp a bit more. We have one in Genesis chapter 28. It's concerning Jacob. And Jacob has left the family home, and his, he's on his way to his mother's family in order that he might get a wife for himself. He was told not to take a wife from the land of Canaan, but to go to his mother's family. And as he was there, things went well for him. One night, he had the, the vision, the ladder going up to heaven. And after this, in Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 to 21, it says, And Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God. He was asking the Lord to lead him and guide him and bless him and provide for him. And if God would provide food and clothing for him and look after him and bring him back to his father's house in peace, then the promise is in the vow, then shall the Lord be my God. We can go to another example. We find it again in the Old Testament. It's concerning Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. This is the vow she made in her prayer to God. And she bowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. She was praying for a son. 
She was very particular. And if the Lord would grant her a request, she would dedicate her son Samuel to the Lord. She made uh, a vow which she kept. Well, there are one or two things we want to say about this chapter. And we want to conclude, obviously, with something that's relevant to ourselves today, tonight, here in Partick. First of all, this is the Lord's command. And Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. And he goes on to elaborate what the Lord hath commanded. And it's important for us here and for the people there to realize uh, this in a evangelistic sense. What do I mean? Well, people, as it was years and years and years ago when this was first written, people gather their information about God from God's people. Today in our modern society, we have Bibles all around us. It's easy to get a Bible if you want a Bible, and many homes will have a Bible. But how many homes and how many people in these homes read their Bibles? How are they going to know about God? How do they evaluate God? What kind of estimation do they have about God? They do it when they look at the Lord's people. Our God, as we know, is a God who is absolutely faithful. He's a God who keeps his word. And we shall look at that later on as we come to the end of the sermon. But this is something that you and I know all about. God is a covenant-keeping God. He has entered into a covenant with his people, and that covenant cannot and will not be broken. Why? Because God is faithful. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, for thy compassions fail not. They are new every morning. And as the prophet says, great is thy faithfulness. And every one of us, and every unbeliever, whether they will acknowledge it or realize it or, or not, it doesn't matter. They have all known something of the faithfulness of God. God is absolutely faithful. And as I spoke about the covenant, he made the covenant of grace. He made it, we know, with Abraham. And the book of Hebrews tells us that God swear on that covenant. And since there was no one greater than himself, he swore by himself. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. If we are Christians tonight, and if we're listening to this tonight, and we are Christians we're in that wonderful, unbreakable covenant of grace. 
And God has told us that this covenant is unbreakable. And because there was no one greater than himself, he has sworn by himself that he will meet the terms of that covenant and it will not be broken. And therefore, all who are in that covenant, come what may, no matter if the world be turned upside down, they shall ultimately be saved and brought to glory. And how are people going to know about God? They look to God's people. And therefore, what God is saying is, as I am faithful, as my word is my bond, this is what I want my people to be like. Doesn't Jesus not say much the same? Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is this not the, the ideal, the goal, the aim that's before the people of God? That they're to be like their heavenly Father? Impossible as it seems, yes, but nevertheless, that's our aim and that's our goal. And this is something that God highly prizes because it reveals his own character. John chapter 8, verse 44 is apt to quote here. Jesus again arguing with the, the Pharisees as he's done on many occasions. And he says some terrible things to them as only the Son of God could say these things. No one else could say these things, but he could because he was able to speak infallibly and he was able to discern their hearts and motives. And therefore, when he spoke, it was with truth. And he says on this occasion, John chapter 8, verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Here, the Lord Jesus is reminding us of the character of the evil one. And his character is completely and utterly different from Almighty God. God is a God of truth, a God who will keep his word. Whereas we might say the natural language of the evil one is to lie and not to be faithful to his word, as our first parents found out. Did God really say? Did God really say? Is that what he said? Does he not want to hold you back? Did he not lie to our first parents? And did they not succumb to that lie? And are we not under the consequences of that great sin right at the very beginning, even today? There is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. This is his natural language. It is to lie and not to be true and not to be faithful to his word. That is strong language. That's what Jesus said to these religious people. Ye are of your father, the devil. If we don't keep our word... We are devilish. If we don't 
keep our word, if we're not faithful to our word, if we're not true to our word, if we don't mean what we say, then we're acting like the devil, the one who has no truth in him and who by sinful nature is always lying. Always lying. We sang it earlier on in our psalm. The psalmist, what did he say in verse 163 of Psalm 119? I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. This is what this is about. To be true, to be steadfast, to be faithful to our word. As was mentioned in prayer, the world thinks very little of this. Very little. People stand before ministers and they take vows and they say, I do. And they do for a few years, a decade or two decades. And then they come to the point, well, I no longer do. I don't now. Things have changed. But not with God. That's not what he's saying here. He is telling us to be true and to be faithful to our word and to our vows that we might take. Again, another verse that's very apt and appropriate. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 5. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. We shouldn't make promises if we're not going to keep them. Office bearers, ministers, make promises, take vows. It would be far better not to take these vows if you're not going to honor them. And you can go and say this in any aspect of life that we find ourselves in, where we've got to take vows. And people might say, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm not recognizing God. I'm not taking my vows in the sight of God. That doesn't matter. You can't erase God. God is omniscient. He's all present. And whether a person takes vows in a, a religious setting or a non-religious setting, it matters not. Our words are important. Our promises and our vows are important. God expects them to be honored. Far better to heed the words of the Lord Jesus regarding this subject in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 37 of chapter 5. What does he say? But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. But the bulk of this chapter then is on making vows. We'll briefly look at what the bulk of the chapter says, and then we shall draw a conclusion for us today. Verse 2, for instance, it talks about men. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Full stop, period, end. It's clear. If a man makes a vow or an oath 
to bind his soul, to do something, to say something, or whatever, to behave in a certain manner, he's to do it. There's no way out of it as far as God is concerned. If this is what he's done, willingly, freely, voluntarily, of his own free will, then he has to honor that vow. It talks about young women at home under the, the care of their father, a minor. If that person, that young lady makes a vow, she's bound to it. If her father hears about it and he's silent, then she's bound to fulfill and honor that vow. But if her father hears of it and does not agree to it, he can cancel it and she's free from it. The same for married women. If a woman was married, she takes upon herself a vow. If her husband hears of it and he remains silent, by that silence he has given his consent to the vow. If he hears of it and he doesn't agree with it, he can cancel it and it will become null and void. In verses 9, we're told about the widow and the, and the divorcee. Again, both women, if they are to make a vow, then that vow stands. Basically, what we find in these verses is that a young woman or girl or a married woman, if they make a vow, it stands, unless the father or the husband says it doesn't. And we may well ask ourselves, really, why is the chapter basically taken up with women and them making vows? Why does it seem to single out girls and women? Well, one or two reasons why it doesn't uh, single them out. It's not because they are inferior. They are not inferior. God created man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness and holiness. Men and women are equal in the sight of God. So that's not the reason why the chapter focuses on women. And it's not because they are more likely to make a rash vow. That's not the case at all. Many men will make a rash vow. It's not because their vows were less binding. We know that their vows were binding also but they could be overturned by the father or a husband. And it's not because the women are regarded as the weaker sex. And as a result, they may be thought to be less likely to fulfill their vows. That's not the case at all. And it's not because men were stronger and women weaker. No, nothing like that whatsoever. The reason why that the passage is dominated with women taking vows 
is the fact that God is wanting his people to realize, to recognize, to be made aware of, and to understand male headship in society. Here they are on the brink of the promised land, about to enter into the promised land, and they're about to take it and fight for it. But soon they'll be in it. It'll soon be theirs. They are, in some sense, establishing a new society, and they are to be reminded of the headship of men. Now, we know today this would be laughable, but nevertheless, it's true. Man is the great uh, covenant head in the family home, and the Bible recognizes male leadership, and he wants his people to recognize male leadership. And he also wants them to recognize that here is the order that God has set up for family life and for the life of society. Again, as they go into this new land, this new society, he wants them to be firmly established. And to note that, the, that he approves and has set up male leadership, God's appointed order. And what they are to realize is that any vow that a woman would take is not to undermine God's appointed order. These vows obviously were religious vows. They were vows that people would take in order that they might honor their God or to show their consecration and dedication to God. And what he is saying is, he has put in place a God-appointed order where the male is the head. And any vow cannot undermine what he has already established. That's what he wants to impress upon them in this chapter. But there is another reason also. We're inclined to believe, friends, as we go through the Old Testament, that the Old Testament, even these mysterious passages or obscure passages that we find in the book of Numbers, reveal to us something concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage is no exception. We go back to verse 2. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. How many men have broken their vows? Multitudes and multitudes and multitudes. But there's one who hasn't. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage here is teaching us about one who has entered into covenant and who has promised that he will perform everything that is required in order to save his people. And the women here are pictures of the church. How many people in the church have broken their vows They've made pledges. They've made promises. But how many have broken them? 
But Jesus Christ on the other side has not broken any of his promises. He has fulfilled all and will fulfill all. And this is again reminding us of the uniqueness of Christ. I don't know if you can remember. I remember it myself vaguely. We went through a chapter that dealt with the woman caught in adultery or the husband thought that she had committed adultery. And there was a process to go through whereby the, the man would take his wife before the priest and she would drink something of the dust of the earth. And if it affected her, then she was going to be one who had committed adultery and who had been unfaithful. When we looked at that, we also came to the conclusion that the woman was a picture of the church. The church has been so unfaithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church, Christians, church, what have they done? They've gone after other gods, as they've done throughout the whole of the ages of the church. They have abandoned the, 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 the bridegroom, and they've gone and focused on other bridegrooms, other gods. But there's one who is faithful, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage here is also reminding us about him, about what he has done. And as the title was given to the sermon tonight, to fulfill your vows, you are to fulfill them. Whatever you've made, you are to fulfill them. You will be held accountable for them. But we rejoice that someone who has fulfilled his vows and is fulfilling them and will fulfill them, he will not abandon his people. He cannot be but faithful. It goes back to what we said concerning the covenant that God made with Abraham. He swore by himself. We are here tonight because a man vowed a vow, and that man is the God-man, Jesus Christ the Lord. And your salvation, your ultimate glorification, your ultimate security is bound up in him who cannot and who will not break his vow. In a day when many think nothing of breaking their promises, the Christian is to be a man or woman who keeps their promises. Why? Because God keeps his promises. And we are God's people. And the people will look to us. And from what they see concerning the people of God, they will make their estimation of God himself. He is faithful. We are to be faithful. Fulfill your word. Amen. And may the Lord bless his word to us. Let us pray.